Wellness Force Radio, episode 63. Let the purpose unveil itself. Like your only duty almost is to be pure in your thoughts and ideas. And I think that again goes back to the same construct of learning, reflecting, meditating or experiencing. And if you kind of do that and purify, the purpose reveals itself. So life is then becomes a slow journey of unpeeling and unveiling versus a constant hankering that I'm going from this purpose to that purpose to that purpose let the purpose almost find you because of the purity with which you are acting in your current state welcome back to another episode this is josh trent your host thanks my friend for sharing your time with me here on the podcast this show is where i bring you access to the most inspiring and passionate experts in behavior change and wellness technology today and every week you and i get to come together to learn from these world-class leaders who are dedicating their lives to driving real transformation in our physical and emotional wellness. This episode is brought to you by the show sponsor, Perfect Supplements. I am honored to be linked with this company. You guys, they walk the talk with their values of non-GMO, pesticide-free, and organic supplements that'll help us all on the wellness journey. Check out perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce or enter coupon code wellnessforce. Save 10% off all the products on the site for these nutrient-dense superfoods. All right, episode 63, we're bringing on New York Times bestselling author Karan Bajaj. He talks about living modern life through a yogic prism. He's a best-selling author and a striving yogi. He was born and raised in the Indian Himalayas. He now lives in Brooklyn, but 100,000 people read his work every week on writing and meditation. I read Karan's book last month, The Yoga of Max's Discontent. And I have to be honest with you, I do not read fiction books, but this one was awesome. He explores this character, a Wall Street banker, Maximus, who confronts questions about suffering and morality. And really, this unpacks all of our search to find some meaning in our life. If you're currently in a job that you don't enjoy, or your life is moving in a direction that you're not in alignment with, this is the show for you. So much of what we talk about on Wellness Force Radio has to do with behavior change. Well, before we can change any of our behaviors, we first get to check in with why we do what we do in the first place. I think this book, The Yoga of Max's Discontent, and all the unique questions that I handcrafted for Karan, you're really going to enjoy. So we're going to take a right turn away from wellness technology and straight ahead towards emotions and purpose. We'll explore how to take sabbaticals, no matter if you have a family or if you're a single busy working professional through yoga and meditation, how this can be what actually unlocks the change in our lives we get to have, including jobs, careers, relationships. We'll also talk about how to strip yourself from emotional materialism, how we can allow ourselves to just be instead of always trying to become something else, and how at any age, with the right tools and framework, you can have the power to course correct and change your life to find yourself or just finally find what makes you feel secured and happy. Let's jump into this powerful conversation with Karan Bajaj. Karan Bajaj, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh. Pleasure to be here. And I am excited to be able to share your work. You know, we have touched base a few times before you came on the show. And it was one of these things where when you start a project, I think a lot of people can relate. There's initial excitement about the project. There was no idea in my mind what I would find the deeper that I dug. And I am so really feeling honored to be able to share this story to the audience today. I want to start by just painting this quick picture of your past. Recently in the New York Times, there was an article published and it was called A Hard Driving Executive's Year of Learning to Let Go. 
I don't know if you're listening and you can relate to letting go, but this is a topic that is, I think, more important now than ever. We're the busiest we've ever been. We have the most devices and the most distraction. But you grew up, Karan, in the Indian Himalayas as a young child. You saw a steady stream of professionals. These were, you know, people that were very affluent in their communities, doctors, engineers, lawyers. They would leave their careers and live in these ashrams and caves near the village that you grew up in. You never really at that age understood their motives, but then 20 years later, and we'll talk about your book and everything you've been through, you actually had the same strong urge to have this time in silence that came ultimately after your mother's passing from cancer. Being at that age, you grew up with 500 people, I think, in your village, kind of sheltered from the world. What was that early time for you? How did that craft the way that you would then become an author? Uh, great question, Josh. Um, it was very idyllic in the sense that you would picture a small village in the Indian mountains to be. So not very touristy, um, just very distant from the mainland. And just there were like images growing up that didn't mean anything, as I said, as I kind of wrote in the article as well, uh, like the yogis who lived in the caves. We would just be very surprised by them, but also after a a period of time, we just didn't think about them. They became part of the landscape, if you will. Mm. But there were always these, uh, like every few months, there would be some traveler from somewhere, not just from India, but from kind of outside India as well, who would enter the village and would either join one of the ashrams or would end up living in one of the caves nearby. And they were very kind of puzzling creatures at that time. But I guess, you know, you come back full circle. So I went through the cycle of, you know, going outside of India, then just ended up revisiting my whole childhood again just a few years ago. This kind of thing where Americans or people from across the world, you know, they leave their law practice and they go to India to study yoga and meditation. Yeah. It's kind of um, it's kind of a trivial thing where the citizens of India <laughs> yes. look at this and they say, well, what are these silly Americans doing coming to India and trying to find themselves? How, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think that's, yeah. Um, we we just used to find it very strange because uh, it's almost like we have this kind of concept in the yoga sutras where uh, the, the meaning of life, they say, is like the eagle who spreads its wings very high first. So it grows and experiences everything the world has to offer. And that's what it does in the beginning. Like that's its flight in the beginning. And then it has to bring its wings down or... Uh, complete its journey by going within. So that's kind of how they think that life is about, uh, like the flight of an eagle. So I guess in my early days, I was just growing and, and I, I, we couldn't just picture this idea of people wanting to go within or become completely silent or choose silence because your whole idea was about experiences and growth and seeking things in the world and knowledge and mm. so 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 I, we, I went through that journey without realizing that I was going through that yoga sutras kind of journey and it's interesting because I live in Encinitas, California, and we have the Self-Realization Fellowship here, which is you know, Parmahansa Yogananda. Yes. He has the fellowship here. And I think I do see this, Karan, where there are a lot of people that um, they wear the robes and they wear the clothes, but they're not actually living the practice of having, as you call, the yogic prism, life through a yogic prism. Can you define why you have that on your site? What is this yogic prism and, and how do we live our lives in this way? I think of yogic prism being this idea of complete selflessness or becoming just a medium for your work to express its, uh, express itself. So you um, just relinquish a sense of doership completely. And so for me, that's kind of the life of a yogi. 
Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of the principle that I try to live by. You fail and stumble often, but the whole idea is that you are trying to live by this idea that that you have no sense of self left at all when you're working. You're just becoming a vessel for your work to express itself. Your recent book, The Yoga of Max's Discontent, this is actually your fourth book. This one is a huge bestseller. It's about an investment banker who becomes a yogi through spiritual transformation. Really, the stripping of emotional materialism. Before we dive into your book, and I have a ton of questions, we're probably going to have to be back on the show for all the questions that I have, but the stripping of emotional materialism. I mean, what, what exactly is the definition of emotional materialism? I define emotional materialism as this idea of constantly wanting to become, uh, become someone different, better, wanting to constantly hankering for growth, for ideas, for experiences. And I experience that very often in my life, uh, which is uh, like, so I'm kind of in this system that I've devised for myself now where I work for four years and take a year off then work for four years and take a year off. So I've been following this for the last decade in which four years become the period of uh, like living in the world. And what I've noticed with myself during this period is that uh, like I'm not very physically materialistic. I don't want any houses and cars and all those possessions, but I ended up becoming very driven by this idea that I want to become someone different than who I am. And as a result, I read too much. I listen to a lot of podcasts and this advice and that advice. So I'm always constantly surrounded by this idea that I have to be someone different or someone better than I am. <laughs> I think of that as a little bit of emotional materialism. And and I, f I find that in the year that I take off, this is the best thing that happens to me is that I shed this idea that I have to be someone other than myself. Mm. And And in the year that I take off, I uh, really am operating with this idea that everything that I need to create exists right within me. So I'm not reading anything more than one or two books for the whole year. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of uh, like drifting a little bit. And, and I've seen that a lot of originality comes to my life when I strip my uh, life of this noise of constant becoming. And, uh, and, and like some, like my creation just gets very beautiful that way. We had a pre-show call a few weeks ago and something so honest came out of your mouth. You know, you'd mentioned that in America, people are kind of pursuing a job that is in alignment with their passions. But in India, when you were growing up, the opportunities to grow a career come in many different forms that always don't align with passion. I asked this because working as a consultant for Kraft Foods, you actually specifically worked with Kool-Aid and Capri Sun. And it was during this time, Karan, that your mother had passed what was the part of the motivation for you to write this book? Did that stem from your experience of her passing? And walk us through kind of what happened to actually spark the yoga of Max's discontent. I'd always been pulled to the Eastern mystical traditions growing up there. So I'd always had a little bit of a pull for the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and I would always keep studying them. But my life in a way was very discordant with that. So I would read all these spiritual texts, but in my life I was... I guess, living in New York, living in the corporate world, very attached to many things. So I, I, I just, uh, I think when I, when my mom died, those questions that are raised in Eastern spiritual texts about why do we exist? What is the meaning of life? Why does suffering happen? Those kind of original questions that led those spiritual seekers to leave everything behind and go on a spiritual quest. I think those questions became very real and urgent for me. And it wasn't as like A, a for B. So it's not like that the moment my mom passed away, I started to be like, now I need to answer mm -hmm. uh, the questions of mortality and suffering. But I think that really started to become the trigger for, uh, it just shone the light for me in my life. It just, 
it just made me realize that the concepts that I was reading and thinking about were extremely different from the life that I was living. So my life had no profound questions that I was trying to uh, unravel and answer mm -hmm. beyond the, I guess, the intellectual consumption of knowledge. So I wanted to go from the intellectual consumption of knowledge to experiencing, uh, like, uh, like, you know, experiencing reality in its, uh, in its brutally, all, like, raw form. So I think that kind of led to this decision that I had to leave my life behind and, and leave in the direction of a spiritual quest that, a bit like, you know, so many people before me have done. And you felt called to go on this quest. I think a lot of people specifically here in California kind of have this craving for this quest, Karan, but it yeah. doesn't show up. Maybe it's trying to be, you know, forced into their life and they're really trying to find what it is they're doing. Almost like asking you the question, you know, how do we find our life's purpose? But you actually worked as a consultant for Kraft and Kraft is yeah. somebody that I consider to be part of the problem in the wellness industry yeah. with the products they sell. But you actually now work for a startup, correct? Correct. Yeah. So the irony of that is that my wife is a nutritionist and uh, she, uh, <laughs> she's, right. she, forgot about yeah, that. Yeah. she works for a holistic yeah. doctor and it was very interesting. She's Irish. She, she was born, born in the US. And for many years when I was actually working for Kraft in New York, she and I would have a lot of conflict about this because she was a nutritionist. She, she stood for everything that Kraft was not. And, uh, and I remember that during those times, I would have a very... I guess like a, a very selfish chance about it because I would always be like, you know, uh, a person like me who came from India. These big corporations gave us a chance to go out of our country. You know, they sponsored our green cards, sponsored our citizenships. And I can't just turn my back around and yeah. say that I'm now too, like I'm too big for them or I'm too like pure for them. So I would always have this conflict because I wasn't ready. You know, so I think that's the difference is that I, if I had gone and quit the company then, and gone on some kind of organic product lifestyle, it wouldn't have felt extremely authentic. I would have felt that I was doing something for, uh, like, I guess, uh, like that's more like I'm trying to do something because that's the right thing to do versus that's the right thing to do for me. Mm. So it had to come, that calling had to come from within, to your point. God, that's powerful for so many reasons because I think one of the things that I just felt from reading your book uh, by the way, 300 pages, I read it in two days, just to let you know. Uh, an absolute, as they say, page turner, because this is unique. I don't read books that are about stories, Karan. I typically watch documentaries. I'm reading um, nonfiction books. But this was the first time in years, my man, that I have actually read a book where it was a character with a story. And it reminded me of Paulo Coelho's work. You know, when we look at The Alchemist, the, the young boy that goes on the journey to then find himself at the end. You guys are going to check this book out. I'm going to link it in the show notes. It's wellnessforce.com slash Karan. And that's K-A-R-A-N. That's where we're going to have all the show notes from today. But Karan, let's talk about this journey piece, because this is the heart of your entire process here. You know, you're working for Capri Sun. You're actually in a meeting. I heard you say you're in a happy hour. You were listening to conversations about people that were buying their new homes and kind of what car they were going to drive. And you just had this feeling where you became aware of the mediocrity factor, that this was not a fit for you. Then you go on to go on really what I call the first leg of the journey. Walk us through what you were feeling at that time. Yeah, so um, the, the first sabbatical that I did was actually years ago was when I was working for Procter & Gamble and I had this very strong feeling that life was going in a very 
predictable, um, mediocre sort of a direction. But the first couple of sabbaticals that I've taken over the last decade, so as I said, I've taken three sabbaticals over the last decade, once every four years on an average. And the first two sabbaticals were very different because they were extremely focused about with experiences in the world. So traveling extensively, living in places that I always wanted to live in. But I guess the last sabbatical was very different because it was very internal. So the idea was not to experience more things in the world, but almost to travel to go within uh, was 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 the uh, whole idea so we kind of stru- my wife and I structured the sabbatical into three portions uh, the first one was to go from europe to india by road and the whole idea there was that we would go without any plans at all in a completely goalless sort of a way and and just allow ourselves the luxury to to drift to not have this concrete sense of goals and accomplishments and this is what we want to achieve because the whole idea is that you're just shedding layers of identity which is what i also do in the book a little bit is that you're shedding layers of physical emotional and spiritual identities so the whole idea was that if we go from europe to india by road we won't have preferences that we are vegetarians and we <laughs> like green juices and we like this because they also are they bind you to a very fixed notion of yourself so we would just kind of let the road decide how and who we should be so the whole idea was that we would do that so europe to india by road was one leg of the journey then the next leg of the journey was to actually spend time in india learning yoga and meditation in an ashram in a in a like in a very deep austere way so that's like kind of sleeping on the floor of an ashram taking cold showers every day so being very like relinquishing all sense of physical attachment so that was very important to the whole process of living in the ashram and then the last 4 months was really coming back we hadn't planned it but then it i ended up like living in a village in portugal and writing for 4 months while my wife did some other nutrition related stuff um, in portugal around the same time what's really fascinating the most is that during this process you had no idea that you were a talented writer correct i mean this is what came up when you created the space to know this about yourself Yeah the first one was like that which was very interesting for me because for the first 28 years of my life I'd never written a single non-technical word almost like you know not to and I'm exaggerating just a little here <laughs> but the the point is that I was an engineer an MBA I'd never even thought that I could be any kind of a creative writer at all so that was 28 years of my life and then on the 29th year I wrote a novel which ended up doing extremely well in India so in that year and and really i didn't even set out to write a novel i set out to take time off to travel i ended up living in a in bhutan um in central uh, like uh, right next to india that's small uh, kingdom and there was this very strong sense of silence that over that uh, Yeah, for the first time opened up in my life and I just started to write and I'd never had no knowledge about how to write a novel what was the art of writing the novel how to construct stories I just started to write and within about 3 4 months I finished a novel and then in its very raw form the novel got published by Harper Collins ended up doing very well because there was something very honest about it mm-hmm. overall because there was no act of trying to become a writer or wanting to write to get uh, you know like there was just no or like it was very uh, pure in that way and i think that's why it kind of struck a chord with a lot of indians that time so so that that's how i kind of systemize this idea that there has to be a year in which you are not 
um, setting any almost concrete goals for yourself of becoming someone and you're just being and, and uncovering facets of yourself that you didn't even know existed. <laughs> and I'm smiling because when you say, you know, just being, how do we do this though? This is something that comes up a lot with different guests. We had Dr. John Gray on the show and he went through a very similar experience where he was working uh, in deep meditation for years, sleeping on a cold concrete floor and his life was transformed from that. And he talked a little bit about this, but Karan, with your experience, I would so love for you to unpack this idea of how do we learn to just be instead of learning to become something, trying to become something all the time? Yeah, I mean, the the truth though is that you, uh, like in, in Buddhism, they say that there are three stages of learning, uh, sharana, manana, nididhyana, which means learning through secondary sources, which is books, people, etc. then reflecting on those learnings. And then the third stage is to actually experience the learning. If you go through only one of these three stages, then your learning never becomes, you don't truly become your learning. You don't truly get immersed in the learning. And if you only do the third stage, if you just experience that also is not enough because slowly you'll go back to your old patterns. So you have to do all three. So I guess the true answer is that you just can't do any one of those three. You need to constantly be reading kind of spiritual texts or texts which kind of are encouraging you to strip layers of notions of identity. So like, you know, the yogic texts or the Buddhist texts or any other texts that you pick up. So reading constantly, reflecting on those learnings and then actually meditating and trying to live with the learning. So I think all three of them have to happen continuously. I feel like even now, after five years of meditating, even now when I stop to read the the kind of the yogic Buddhist, Buddhist text, if I stop reading, I see my practice slip. Mm. And and so it's even after five years of meditating and having read all of these books, having written a book, which is in the same genre, I see myself starting to slip when I'm not reading or reflecting and just meditating. And obviously when I'm not meditating and just reading, I can immediately see an impact on my life. So you have to have this uh, reading, reflection and experience almost going on continuously to truly get into this idea of like... Uh, surrendering, being, not becoming. Mm -hmm. And it's so honest that you mentioned that too. You you know, you're saying when my, when my practices slip, so does my clarity. And so does my path that I'm trying to go on. And and I think the unique reflection point for me was that you wrote this book, you wrote the yoga of Max's discontent after kind of years of being hungry for this emotional growth. How do I become this person? How do I become this person? But when you wrote the yoga of Max's discontent, you wrote it in silence and the hunger for the growth wasn't there as it was before. Do you feel like this made the book more powerful? The reviews obviously state that it's very truthful and has powerful honesty. But what about looking back? I mean, do you feel like the intense hunger then led you to a space where you weren't hungry anymore? You just wanted to write. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. Because I think the biggest thing that happens is that I I am surprised myself when I read some of my blogs written during the period when I have this desire to grow and, uh, and, and I'm reading a lot and consuming a lot of knowledge. When I read those blogs, there is a certain staleness in them because the staleness is happening because it's really a summary of the world's ideas in my message. And then when I read what I wrote in this year of where I was not reading anything, where I was not relying on anybody to tell me these are the hacks to get better and this is how you should be more productive, etc. When I was not doing any self-improvement work and just creating from a place of silence, there is almost like a glimpse of magic in the work. So it's so obvious to see now and now when I'm back in the world again because the sabbatical was in 2013 and I'm back again for the last two, three years, I've seen the same regurgitation of the world's opinions coming into my work again. Mm. 
and and that's why I almost know once again that I'm due again for my next sabbatical in 18 months or so because my ideas are getting extremely stale again. And I hate to say it because I shouldn't be saying it, but but it's true. <laughs> uh, you know, like that I... Because it it's not my fault. It's just that I, if I read 18 different things, my opinion is going to be a summary of that. Sure. And when I am not... Um, like when I'm kind of operating from a place of silence, there is a hint of kind of originality in the work. There's a hint of truth in it. So, so to your to answer your question, yes, absolutely. There was a lot of I couldn't write the uh, uh, many parts of the novel again. And to to really paint a picture of the book here, it's doing the work on ourselves. But it's interesting because you've mentioned before that this degree of the work we do on ourselves will also reflect financial growth and success in our lives. How does the degree of inner work we do grow our financial wealth? It's a great question. And it's almost, um, there is not a practical answer to it as much as a, like a little bit of a mystical answer to it, which is every time I've taken these years off, and I've done three in the last decades, this 414 kind of a rule. I always take the year off thinking that I will end up losing money, right? Because I'll be traveling for a year. Again, not in very luxurious circumstances. If I look at the last sabbatical, uh, uh, you know, we were living in ashrams and in India, like they, you, you end up spending very little, but still you're not earning sure. that year. And uh, you are, uh, you know, money is flowing out, not flowing in. And I always expect to, I set up a budget to lose money. So this sabbatical, we thought that between the two of us, we would end up, end up spending about thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars $35,000. We ended up spending about twenty-five, $13,000 per person for the whole year. But when I look at the book deal with Random House, it's a six-figure book deal. And I've seen that happen again and again with wow. each of the years off, that if I come back in some form or the other, and it's not necessarily about writing a book, um, in some form or the other, the world rewards me because I've grown very, very significantly during this year off. So that could be a book deal or it could be a promotion at work when you least expect it because you would almost expect that when you come back from a sabbatical, like the world has passed you by or people have leapfrogged mm -hmm. you. And that does happen for a, like a month or two. It might be that I might be passed over for a promotion or whatever. But slowly I catch up and move ahead because there's just a lot of silence, a glimpse of intuition and more creativity in my decision making. Uh, I'm just better. And slowly the world rewards me for being better. And I've seen that again and again, that there's always a willing suspension when I go, knowing that I'll either not come back to a job waiting for me, or I'll come back to a job in which you know, people are questioning whether like, I'm serious about my work, etc. And that always happens. But some form or the other, I kind of catch up quickly and start to reap the benefits of the year in a way that I wouldn't have if I hadn't gone. And this is an interesting topic for me because I think a lot of people want to kind of jump and then the net will appear. And that's kind of their mindset with life, especially in the spiritual communities and the yoga community. There's a lot of focus on trusting the process, but that's not exactly what I'm hearing you say. I mean, this 414 model, this is a structured time block where for four years, your head is down and you are working to earn that year off, right? I mean, these, this 414 model, Model. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, exactly, Josh. That's the whole uh, point is that the four years you're working in a very goal-driven goal way, you're like you're not just accumulating financial wealth, but you're also accumulating, I guess, worldly knowledge, if you will. Like, you know, I'm reading a lot. I'm reading about writing. I'm reading about, uh, you know, like my job and I'm actually working in my job. So you're kind of consciously 
uh, extremely in the world, if you will. And then the year off is when you are subsuming all desire to become consciously letting go, uh, letting go of goals. But I think the combination is very good. If I just think of the year off, then if that became my life, I don't know if I'd be able to create at a very high frequency. So it's good to have the discipline to to work, to write, because that discipline allows an output, but that discipline leads to a lack of magic in the work. So the year is really that I take off ends up having a little bit of a magic in my life, in my work. But if it was just magic and no hardworking discipline, then I don't think I would produce output at a rapid consistency. So that's part of this 414 model. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other aspect is that I think the biggest difference in the US that I see is that people are constantly reinventing all the time. You know, they go from lawyer to yoga teacher, from corporate professional to a life purpose coach. Like there's always a constant reinvention. And my point is almost like that instead of going from point A to point B constantly, there might be some merit in going from point A to nothing at all with this idea that you might come back to or that you will come back to point A because that will allow you to just slack and... Um, loosen enough mm-hmm. to fully be in that moment if you will because there is this uh, like there is this comfort at the back of your mind that you're coming back and not okay now I'm gonna consciously now I'm going from lawyer to yoga teacher and I have to kind of hustle again to become a yoga teacher and I'm gonna hustle again too so you're constantly just using the same set of skills again and again in different directions versus taking a year to truly uh, just like, uh, you know, uh, like just have the space to grow in ways that you don't even know that you can possibly grow. I know what some people are thinking, though. Some some people are probably thinking, well, how do I do this? I mean, how do I take a year removed from my life? We're going to talk about specifically, I have some questions for you as a father now, uh, how you might do this later. But for people that are just looking to take this sabbatical, really to create the space like you and I had talked about, sometimes life can become so incredibly overwhelming from yeah. inputs and stress and responsibilities. I found in my own life, Karan, that taking six months off when I was 22 years old, I weighed 280 pounds. And I was so unhappy with the way that I felt in my body and in my heart. And I just sold everything I owned. And I left to Hawaii and I spent six months fishing and learning and just mm. understanding what it, what is it? How do I feel good in my body? How do I create a life of wellness for myself? And that's how I found fitness as a catalyzing power for health. So I understand this model that you're talking about where in order to figure out what we get to do next, we sometimes have to create the space by letting everything we know completely go away. Exactly. But how do we do this? I mean, what are the steps for most people to begin this year off for reflection, for space, for creativity? My first recommendation is always that you should start building the muscle with smaller, more meaningful vacations or time offs. So what I see often happen is that people will go from their uh, comfortable lives to a beach resort in the Caribbean, in which they are just taking a vacation in the physical construct. So they're leaving their homes to a uh, for a comfortable for a different environment, but they're not truly dissolving the mind or. Uh, completely kind of relinquishing their sense of self in the vacation. So if I think of a 10-day vacation, which is spent in a, call it a Vipassana meditation retreat, 10 days of silence and Vipassana, or 10 days of a extreme physical vacation in which they are hiking in the Grand Canyon or whatever for four or five days, it, those are vacations in which you dissolve your sense of self and become someone, and you almost end up with a different identity or you've learned something completely new because you've totally dissolved your habit patterns and 
uh, and and the construct of your life for a period of time. So what I've seen is that when you start building your muscle with those those ten day vacations, that one month mm. vacations, you you start to feel the impact of this in your life. So I know an entrepreneur now who's doing. Uh, he can't take a year off because he's an entrepreneur with 15 employees, but he's a systemized just 717 model in which he works for seven weeks and then he gives his whole company a week off and then comes back and works for seven weeks and gives his whole company a week oh, off. Oh, wow. I would like to work <laughs> for him. <laughs> yeah, because his, uh, his, he's just seen dramatic impact in his output once he comes back. Mm. And and that is forcing him to do this. So so I think that's what I've also saw in myself was that I was pushing myself on vacations, and that started to lead me to this idea that um, these these kind of moments where I'm totally relinquishing all sense of self, I come back with a very very uh, different inter- perspective about life, which has tremendous effect in how I think, how I work, huh. how I live. I think it's important to note, too, that the book title, The Yoga of Max's Discontent, the discontent is what I think a lot of us feel in life. I think a lot of people that I know are discontent about what they're doing, how they're being, what their life career is or their purpose. Is it pain that that makes people want to take a sabbatical? I mean, what is the main fuel and driver for people that you've experienced that want to take a sabbatical in the first place? It's a good question. Um, For me now, it's no longer pain as much as this idea that, um, that, you know, I'll come back just with um, uh, a deeper... A higher sense of connection with myself. So now it's no longer pain, but I feel, yeah, I, I like my overall kind of thought in this direction is that when when you're stuck with uh, like what I found work for me is that if I'm stuck with I don't like this job, I don't like this, uh, I don't like where I'm going. I, I think for me the better solution is to purify my actions, and that leads to different outcomes rather than to change of rather than to change direction almost so when people are like dissatisfied with their job and are looking for a different sense of purpose i almost feel that that might lead to not a healthy decision because you are moving away from something versus going towards something almost mm-hmm. and it might be more beneficial which i've seen with myself is that if you are purifying your thoughts if you're not con- completely consumed all the time with this idea that I hate this and I don't you know and and, and I should do, be doing something else rather than that you go approach it with a little bit of a more purity around I am where I am and I'm now going to just do the best where I am and operate with a level of silence and goodness in my job I've seen that what happens is that that natural karma karmic cycle kind of kicks off that your thoughts are purer that leads to purer actions that leads to a purer reaction more space opens up and new opportunities start to come We'll get right back to the conversation with Karan. I want to share with you a new supplement I've been working into my diet, Perfect Hydrolyzed Collagen. This has no hormones, synthetics, or pesticides. Here's the big deal about grass-fed. There's a lot of media coverage out there about, should I do grass-fed, should I not? Yes, you should. The animals that get to eat grass do not need medications and antibiotics. Therefore, you don't eat their medications and antibiotics. It's a big deal. 100% grass-fed, no hormone synthetic or pesticide collagen is the only way to go. And here's the really cool thing. You mix a scoop of this into your water and it disappears. All it tastes like is water. You can throw it in your smoothies in the morning. It's awesome. Hydrolyzed collagen is a great way to get joint integrity building proteins into your body and to give you that extra satiation, which will then in turn 
give you more energy throughout the day. Visit perfectsupplements.com slash wellnessforce and enter coupon code wellnessforce. You'll save 10% off collagen and everything else you purchase with some big discounts over on the page. Now let's jump back to this conversation with Karan. Wow. And I think the the uniqueness of this is that I've been in spaces in my life before I found fitness and wellness and even in spaces of being in the wellness industry where I've just been looking for the next layer. And I think people can relate to this. There's an author who I've referenced a lot and his name is David Dita. He talks about peeling through the layers of purpose. You know, as one purpose is resolved, the next one appears. And I think there's this space that exists in between yeah. the clarity of the next step for purpose. I think it's during this time that I want to talk about Quran, there's the, the discontent really brews for people. It's this space in between knowing the previous purpose is done and not having clarity around the next purpose. How do we feel comfort in this space for ourselves? How do we practice being calm in the storm in this space? The best idea for me always is that, um, that to not have a very static sense of I'm going from point A to point B. It's almost like you have to let the purpose unveil itself. Like your only duty almost is to be pure in your thoughts and ideas. And I think that again goes back to the same construct of learning, reflecting, meditating or experiencing. And if you kind of do that and purify, the purpose reveals itself. So life is then becomes a slow journey of unpeeling and unveiling versus a constant hankering that I'm going from this purpose to that purpose to that purpose. Let the purpose almost find you because of the purity with which you are acting in your current state. This piece where you talk about purifying your actions, it's powerful. I've never heard it before. So I really, really like that. And it's interesting because one of the acknowledgements in your book, you talk about this process of being in between purposes. You say, this book isn't as much a result of five years of my life trying to walk on the path of yoga. I stumbled and struggled often to reach the point where I became just a channel for this story to tell itself. How did that happen? I mean, how did you become this channel or the vessel and not caught up in the day to day? No, it's a great question. I think it's particularly in the context of writing, the uh, the thought that I was trying to do with this book is that there is no author left in the book at all. Uh, the character is uh, like, so if the reader is reading the book, it's really they are following the character who's making his own choices, his own slips, his own stumbles, his own goals. And there is no presence of the author left at all. So that was the kind of the the world that I was striving for, that I'm creating a fictive dream in which in this dream, the dream is operating by its own laws at all and the author is not present at all. So it was a very hard thing to do because I almost had to let go completely of my own knowledge of yoga and meditation and 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 uh, and I had to learn everything through the character's eyes. And as a result, actually through the book, I ended up write, uh, learning a lot more about my own meditation practice and stuff, which was kind of powerful for me because that was the, that's the power of a novel as a form in some way is that in a, in a nonfiction kind of environment, you are, you're supposed to be an author who knows everything and you're communicating a message while here you're not communicating, communicating any message. You're just telling a story and the story has to operate by its own laws. Mm -hmm. And as a result of, as a result of telling this story very selflessly, which is what I was trying to do, I ended up becoming the character and learning more about my own life through the story. So that was pretty powerful for me personally. 
Yes. And it's this, it, you literally became the vessel. And I think this is what yeah. we're all working towards when we reach this point of at least being somewhat conscious of, hey, it's not about me. It's about my mission. It's about yeah. my message that I'm trying to get to the world. But however, you've actually stated before, and I, I heard you on a different show. I forgot the show it was, but you actually said that when I noticed myself becoming caught up in my message getting out there or my opinions or my, you know, my deeds being seen, that was the place where you actually had to do a self-check moment and say, actually, it's not even about me getting my message out there. It's about something else. What is the something else? For me, that was the biggest struggle of this story is that there are that there were moments when I almost felt very differently from the character and I wanted to communicate this idea about yoga, this idea of meditation. And and I just didn't like I think that was those moments in which I had to let the story become transcendental almost, like had it uh, have its own divine quality because it, it was a world in itself. Those were the moments where I guess I struggled the most, and but but, but you know you you got to um, you you just understood when you were reading it, and I think you do understand it in your work as well when you can sense the egotism or um, mm-hmm. you know like you're starting to creep in. Is the ego something that we need to let go of or can the ego be used as a power for healing? I mean, look at people with great egos in life that are still serving other human beings. You know, like Martin Luther King, he was a womanizer. He had a a past that was very ego driven, yet he still left such a powerful impact to the world. I mean, can the ego be of service? I I really like this idea of the the eagle's flight, which is that Indian scriptural idea that you have to experience the world in its fullest which means you have to go through the the ups and downs of the whole human experience before you kind of sp- bring the wings down so like i think part of the journey of the ego reaching its full expression is important before you like reach that point of complete relinquishing of the ego or reach that point of complete selflessness if you will very well put yeah and do you feel like some people's wings might be larger than others? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a little bit of a... The, the surprising thing, Josh, is uh, growing up where I grew up now, coming back full circle in the conversation, the biggest difference in our worldview ends up being that in India, you grow up with this idea of karma and rebirth and the law of cause and effect and the, and the fact that it keeps spanning over lifetimes. So I guess you're not burdened to solve everything in just this one life. And it's surprising mm-hmm. I say that because it sounds a little bit more mystical than it should be. But for me, a lifespan is really not 60 years almost. It ends up becoming... So So the whole life becomes a series of like, you are where you are. So you don't have to... Like you're not in a hurry to get to the next level. Like that's why the purpose and all that stuff. We, I guess I, we... Or at least I don't ask myself those questions that deeply as I see my American counterparts do. Because I feel I'll slowly, like, you know, slowly and slowly, as I said, I'll reach the point where my wings have reached its full flight and I'll gracefully bring them down. I don't have to rush that process along. Do you feel like because you came from the village in the Himalayas, you have a different perspective about patience and discipline when compared to most Americans? Because of this reason, like I feel like the yeah, like the hurry to become something is very crucial in the US, right? You almost like you have to cram everything in the 70, 80 years of existence. And I think in our worldview, uh, like I'm fine if in this life I'm a corporate executive who writes on the side and is doing yoga and meditation and slowly and slowly I'm becoming like in this life, if I'm not the cave dwelling monk, 
I'm okay with that. Maybe in my next life, I'll be the cave dwelling my monk who's completely, um, who's completely kind of uh, like, you know, subsumed myself to this idea of enlightenment. But in this life, if I'm not that monk, that teacher, then I'm fine with that. Because it's just like a, like I'm still the eagle who's still spreading its wings and I haven't reached that point where I'm, like I have to become a meditation teacher, a monk, like I'm not there yet. And that's totally comfortable with me. Sure. And you've, you've sharpened this intuitive edge though, to make decisions and to have this awareness. And my question to you is, as we transition into the last part of the show here, where we're actually giving people things they can do, taking action, um, for people that are figuring out how do I take this vacation or meditation or should I stay home and build my business or my career? I mean, how does someone sharpen their intuitive edge the way you have to make the decision whether it's good for me to stay and build or it's time for me to leave and create space? Um, you should always take the time to create space. So there's like almost, a, I would say, um, you know, like figure out your own 414, whether that's Every four months you're taking a week off or it's every six months you're taking a week off, definitely do that and uh, and take those kind of mind-dissolving vacations. I, I would highly recommend if people have not done it, the Vipassana meditation retreat, which is a 10-day silent retreat, is, uh, is now very present everywhere in the US and Europe and everywhere else where uh, for 10 days you are taught meditation in a re- in a retreat where you don't pay for anything at all so you don't mm-hmm. pay for lodging you don't pay for food you don't pay for instructions for 10 days you are completely taken care of by people in the buddhist tradition of like the the teaching being free and also the like it's all through donations that the course is run the the power of that is that when you are not paying for anything at all you're op- you're operating with like a you're almost like a monk with a begging bowl so you end up for those 10 days just learning what's being on offer because you don't have the luxury to choose because you don't you didn't pay or you didn't pay for that choice at all. Mm-hmm. Versus when you go on a vacation where you pay, you have some standards of what you expect. Here you just have to accept whatever is given because you are being given it out of the generosity of others. So I would recommend people should definitely do that. And that I think will give a lot of clarity on how to keep doing more of these or not. Now, that brings up a lot of fear in me. When we first touched base together, I had mentioned that I was kind of exploring the Vipassana. There is a Vipassana center here in California uh, in the desert. I think it's close to 29 Palms. And I've been looking at doing this. I put my name on a preliminary list for December. But I have to tell you, Karan, I am scared to do 10 days by myself. Where do you think my fear comes from? I mean, is it, is it that I won't have my phone or won't be able to, you know, I'm going to backlog a bunch of different uh, podcast episodes and make sure that my social media can run on its own, blah, blah, blah. But basically, I think there's a lot of fear in me to do these 10 days. What do you say to someone like me who's looking at taking 10 days away from his life? I would just say that it's tough. Even if you had no fear at all, I would just say that like, uh, like even if you went with complete enthusiasm, I think 90% of the people want to quit on the second day. So they say it's the second day and the sixth day. The second day, because you're like, I can't do this on the sixth day. You're like, this is going way deeper than I thought or something like that. You just have a lot of emotions that come up. Hmm. So it's it's tough either way. So I think what you're going through is a little bit almost like I would console yourself in this idea that most people feel that way when they first go for it. And most people have a very, very life-changing, rewarding, transforming experience at the end of it. 
What was your impact from your first 10-day Vipassana? The first one was beautiful because it was years and years ago when I was like uh, straight out of school, 20, when I was 21. Like, see, that's the, like, it was a little bit uh, good when you grew up in India. You're just like, you hear about these things a little bit more often that you do in the US. So I, it was almost the rite of passage. So I did mine when I was like 20 or 21, straight out of uh, college. Uh, it was very, the first one was very transforming because I actually didn't meditate after that. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready in that phase of life to start meditating, going very inner. But I think that was the first time I understood the power of, um, like the like the open-mindedness of religion almost. Because till mm. then, uh, I had grown up in, like as I said, in a small town in India, you saw a lot of rituals all around you. Religion was very very important in our life, but it was very ritualized. So you ended up shunning religion as you got more and more educated. And I think Vipassana for the first time opened me to religious thought and the beauty of religious thought in a, in a spiritual context. Like how it, like, like it just for the first time I started to raise questions about what does it mean to be a human with intelligence who's crying out for what is the purpose of life and how do you start answering that question? The center here in California lists on their site that this technique of Vipassana will help to eradicate suffering. How does it do that? Because if they, they kind of follow this Buddhist idea that uh, like that suffering is the reality of the human existence and the suffering, the, the, the core reason why suffering exists is because of attachment, craving, pleasure and, and, and having an aversion to pain. So in our every moment of our life is a constant journey to either get more pleasure, which could be both material pleasure, but also emotional pleasure of... Uh, like, you know, I want to be happy by, to your point, like I want this, like this purpose will make me happy and this decision will make me happy. So we are constantly craving pleasure or we are shunning uh, pain. Uh, and when I mean shunning pain, it's both the physical pain that we are shunning, but we are also shunning pain of uh, like the discomfort of, um, you know, growth or, or we are shunning the pain of like being in a certain state. So this this constant moment of craving pleasure and shunning pain is the reason why suffering exists and uh, you what you're learning through meditation is an awareness that uh, you know that this pleasure and pain are states that are in flux that they keep coming and going because that's the nature of existence and you're not getting attached to these ideas at all so as a result of that you're almost like reaching the end of suffering well, I think you described the pain pleasure cycle. That's my life. <laughs> so my life is constantly swaying back and forth between pleasure and pain. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. My initial, I guess you could say, uh, 20 year old self journey was going away from pain. You know, I, I wanted to experience what a freer life could feel like. And I'm curious from a Vipassana, you know, you're not allowed to eat after midday. You can't have your cell phone. There's no talking and no looking at anyone. And you're meditating for hours and hours a day. Do you feel like this is purification on a level that people of all types would be able to sit through or is Vipassana not for certain types of people? No, for the most part, it's for everyone. Now, they, they, the only people I think they avoid or would want them to avoid is people who are dealing with severe kind of mental problems, if you will. Because again, if you look at the foundation of meditation in the Buddhist text, it was almost like, and that's why I think the West has jumped again to mindfulness. But the whole idea was that the the bottom of the meditation pyramid was morality, for what they call morality in terms of having a basic level of love for yourself and others. That leads to a reasonably enough stable mind to start concentrating, which is the first step of meditation to learn concentration-based meditation. And then you get to these more advanced states where you are emptying your mind of all thoughts. 
but you have to kind of go through those, uh, the, uh, the, the rungs of the ladder. Uh, so, so having said that, what it means is that if you're in that state of complete disarray in which you have like real issues that you need to resolve with yourself about like, you know, having some very deep childhood trauma or things that you haven't come to grasp with yourself, then you shouldn't start meditating because you're not ready yet to have a stable enough mind to build off. So to have like this basic level of love for yourself and for others around you is almost, I would say, the prerequisite for meditation. But they don't even say that. I think uh, mm. part of this journey is that you'd learn all of that in going through the whole experience of meditation. But I would say unless that there is some very deep unresolved issue that you haven't come to terms with yourself yet and you're hoping to get the answer through meditation, that might not be the best approach. What about a general feeling of angst, like an existential angst that someone might be uh, going through, not necessarily uh, physical or sexual abuse or anything like that, nothing they can pinpoint. But what about an individual who's seeking just a lighter way of being, a more present way of being, who doesn't have a traumatic event, but yet there's still that existential angst in their chest? Which is everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, perfect. The pasta is perfect for you because what it'll, it'll just teach you where that angst comes from why does that thought arise and why does it go away and then why even when you realize that this angst is due to this reason and you actually solve that reason again the angst keeps coming up so why does this constant cycle of angst arising and angst passing away originate from and what the benefit of just observing it is so i think vipassana is very powerful for that now transitioning into a family family setting you know you're a father how would you prepare to take a sabbatical with a family? And by the way, it could be a 10-day for someone listening. It could be a month or it could be a year. How do you prepare for that as a, as a father and as a family man? It's actually not very different. I mean, we just spent a month in Costa Rica, like in a mini sabbatical between jobs right now. And we, we want to, uh, we are planning the next one, next sabbatical. I think the only difference is that kids thrive in routine. So if you are taking a vacation, obviously the goallessness and all that stuff will not work for kids. They thrive in this idea. So if you're able to create an alternate routine outside home, uh, then you're perfect. So what we are planning in our next sabbatical is to spend four months in an orphanage in Cambodia, like working with our hands so that our kids like really live in the, like in the world and not in this very privileged kind of Brooklyn existence. So we are spending four months there and four months in Spain, learning Spanish, learning the guitar as a family. So we're just kind of planning things around the kids so that they have a very strong sense of anchor in the day. This is the last part of the show, Karan, and this is seven for seven. It's just seven fast questions for seven top of mind answers. Are you prepared? Yes. Well, you're not that prepared. I didn't send you the questions, yeah. <laughs> so you have no idea. But my first question for you with your unique background, this has been such a fun conversation, and I'm curious what you think about the yoga as an industry model. So yoga and wellness is a multi-billion dollar industry globally. Now, what would you change about it if there was just one thing you could shift about how people perceive or experience yoga and wellness in the world just don't to you made the point earlier don't wear the robes of the monk if you're not ready to be a monk i think there's too much of like that in this industry that i've seen if you could go back to your 18 year old self uh would you ask the 18 year old self any questions or would you tell them one thing because for you it's actually a double question with your work i'm curious if a you would actually even think about going back to your 18 year old self and telling them something and then b if you were open to doing that what would you tell them um i would just uh, say live a big interesting life um and uh, everything else will follow from that 
What does your daily yoga and meditation practice look like now as a father? As a father of two very young babies, 18 months old and one month old, the nighttime, no matter when I sleep, I will always meditate for half an hour or whatever. Like I don't look at the clock, but I always meditate before I sleep because it leads to a very deep, restful sleep. The morning is now completely stolen moments. If I'm able to get some time in the morning before the babies wake up, then I will meditate. If I don't, I'm surrendering to this idea that I don't need to. So I just um, surrender. And then yoga is happening once every three days or so. I do the Hatha yoga physical practice. Why do you prefer Hatha over other types? Because um, it's both a physical and a spiritual. It's very, breathing is a very, very important part of the Hatha yoga practice that I, at least the tradition that I've been taught. So what ends up happening as a result is that I get a good physical workout, but because of the extremely long lengths of breathing and holding poses versus changing them completely, I, I feel a very strong sense of mental stability as well. I can connect with you on that. You know, I do a lot of vinyasa and I've always wanted to just hold the poses for longer, but the class continues to go along. So I'm going to definitely look at Hatha yoga. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. What, what is your biggest lesson that you learned when traveling in regards to staying healthy? How do you be health when you're on the road? Uh, I, I don't know. I think to like when, when I go on a long sabbatical, it's to a little bit kind of to have the principle versus the versus the exact, uh, versus getting too attached to the exact ideas, if you will. So mm-hmm. like just have this principle that you have to be, that you want to be like a spirited and energetic and make choices based on that versus getting attached to the idea that you have to be a vegetarian or you have to be this or you have to be that. When you encounter stress in life or you feel like there's a roadblock, do you have a mantra or a message that you say to yourself to get you through life's difficulty? Anicca, which means uh, this too will pass. Hmm. It's impermanent. It's in uh, transient. I love that. I actually felt calm just by you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> what is your vision for the community that you've created around all of your work? You know, these phenomenal books that are empowering people to let go. What is this vision that you have and what legacy do you want to leave when you're gone? Um, my vision is almost to... My only contract with my audience is that I keep growing as a person, as a writer. And that's kind of truly my only contract, uh, which is to have no, uh, to have actually no static sense of this is my platform, this is my brand, this is my identity. I to completely relinquish all those ideas and keep evolving as a human being. And as a result, um, keep sharing what I'm learning in that journey. Last question, Karan, you know, growing up in a small village in the Himalayas to then becoming a globally published author and serving hundreds of thousands of people per week. What is wellness to you? What is your personal definition of wellness? My personal definition of wellness is now truly to become a medium for my work or to relinquish all sense of self completely. I think if I do that, then I'm Uh, very deeply well in that way. Like, yeah. We talked so much today about living life through this yogic prism and we went in so many different fun directions, Karan, during the conversation. Is there anything you think is important that we may not have talked about? Uh, I really like this idea of, uh, and I'm going to borrow a tradition from fiction where you say that a good, interesting story has the character striving for a very lofty, almost unattainable goal. 
and even if they don't get the goal in this idea of striving for that lofty unattainable goal they slip fall stumble reach the goal not you make for a very very interesting story so i feel like that construct for a story is very interesting for a life as well which is to to like forget this idea of like setting this goal and attainable goals to set very lofty unattainable goals and and like just in the act of reaching for them you end up living a very interesting rich life even if you don't achieve them just like a story where can people discover more about the yoga of max's discontent and all your other books and so many popular articles there's some articles on your site that have been shared uh, thousands and thousands of times where can people learn more uh, they, everything is on karanbajaj.com so if people go there um, they'll find like a wealth of information and again i'm not trying to monetize any of that so as a result it's pretty a pure like i'm i'm pretty honest in what i share <laughs> i love the fact that you're putting it out there for free and you're you're having such high quality content for people to really what i feel like transformation occurs in is a space where someone's giving without the expectation of receiving i feel like that's what transformation truly is thank you karan for your work and and thank you for everything you're doing for the wellness community i really want to honor this space that you serve the world from so thank you for everything you do oh no you're a wonderful man very deep guy <laughs> thank you for asking your questions josh It was a pleasure. That wraps episode 63 on the podcast. Thank you so much, my friend. We made it till the end of the show together. I love connecting with you every single week, but that's not enough. I, I just want more. I want more ideas. I want more energy. I'm sure you do as well. All over social media, Wellness Force. You can tag me on Twitter. Let me know what you thought about the episode. What are you working on in your life right now? Are you going towards your purpose? Are you finding what your purpose is? Or are you just unclear and you're still kind of waiting in the wings? I want to know. Josh at wellnessforce.com. If this show resonated with you or if you've enjoyed any of the shows ever on Wellness Force Radio, please share it with a friend. You are the fuel for the show. I depend on your energy and voice to bring on new guests, ideas, and topics that'll help all of us on this wellness journey. I am accepting summer clients for our digital health coaching programs, and I have a handful of spots left. Let me know in the email subject, coaching, and email me, josh at wellnessforce.com. Now you get to go and have an amazing, inspired day. From all the tools and information from Karan and every guest that's been on the show. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness 